Welcome to Artscoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. The Wall Street Journal's recent revelations in its Facebook Files expose is as haunting as we might have feared, and now the toxicity of the internet is being served up in massive, all-you-can-eat portions. We're largely inured to the damage caused by big tech, reveling as we do in Google searches, Facebook posts, and frictionless Amazon Prime convenience. But the unseen manipulation of public opinion is happening under our feet, even as the bread and circuses of the art world continue apace without drawing a bright line in their responsibility. Caleb Crane's bracing second novel, Overthrow, is about the surveillance state and examines how art, like the rest of society, has been reduced to materialism and consumerism. It's time for arts organizations to review their complicity in that state and to look for ways to serve communities and audiences without lazily conceding terrain and authority to big tech. This week's guest is a social activist disguised as a museum director, and it's bracing to hear her share her origin story and the moral compass that guides her work to this day. I think of the watershed actually as a different definition of public art. It's there, it's open, it's free to the public, it's in a very public place. And I'm interested in using history and landscape to engage people who don't typically think contemporary art is of interest to them. That's Jill Medvedow, Ellen Matilda Poss Director of the Institute of Contemporary Art Boston since 1998. She has led the ICA's transformation from a small, non-collecting institution into a major presence in the contemporary art world and on Boston's waterfront. Building its iconic Diller, Scafidio and Renfro building in 2006, the first new museum building in Boston in a century, transforming it into a collecting institution, creating a significant performing arts program and a national model for teen arts education, and increasing the museum's audience tenfold. In June 2018, she opened the ICA Watershed, transforming a condemned former copper pipe factory across Boston Harbor into a new, free art space in East Boston. Jill was a trustee at the Association of Art Museum Directors, where she led a national effort for paid internships in art museums. She's also a trustee at Boston After School and Beyond, an organization that mobilizes the whole city of Boston to provide experiential learning and enrichment opportunities beyond school hours and she sits on the Boston Public School Arts Advisory Board. She previously founded the 911 Media Arts Center in Seattle, Washington, before moving to Boston and founding the public art program Vita Brevis, and serving as the deputy director and curator of contemporary art at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. She received a BA from Colgate University and an MA from the Institute of Fine Arts, New York University. Jill, welcome to the podcast. Max, it is great to be here. I'm glad to have you, and I want to hear how the ICA is faring with pandemic precautions now back in force. The ICA is faring well. All our visitors are masked up. We've instituted vaccine requirements for our staff, and our visitors are happy to be face-to-face with art in person. Right now, there's a lot of happiness, joy, and meaning at the ICA. Well, you're a place that instills meaning. I mean, most arts institutions do their thing, but you have this idea that your institution should not be intrinsically important, but instrumentally effective. I love that description. I do believe in joy and meaning. I think that we have important work to do, the ICA and museums in general. And it is this combination of artworks 
people, care, compassion, that I think makes us quite distinct. I guess it's fair to say that most of your colleagues are a bit risk-averse and they're happier not testing too many boundaries. I'm wondering if you would agree that the decision to create the ICA watershed was a risky proposition, and I'd love to hear what motivated you to roll the dice on it. Hmm. Well, I might disagree, um, <laughs> though I do not like to disappoint, um, because in, in my small world of contemporary art museums, I think most of my colleagues take an enormous amount of risk every day, since by and large, we're presenting audiences with mostly unfamiliar artists. We don't have a lot of celebrity that surrounds us. Occasionally we do. And we typically don't have very significant safety nets. But your question about the watershed, that definitely was a risk, as was building the new ICA, which was Mm -hmm. probably the greater risk. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the watershed, it's in the neighborhood, the Boston neighborhood of East Boston. And East Boston is dynamic, fabulous neighborhood directly across Boston Harbor from the ICA. And as the ICA began to see a lot of steel and glass buildings, commercial labs, uh, high-end, everything around us, I began to really refocus my own lens and understand that East Boston, in essence, was our front yard. East Boston's been a point of entry for successive waves of immigrants and the human slave trade. And it's been historically quite isolated from mainland Boston. There's a working shipyard in Marina. That's where the watershed is located. And the ICA invested $5 million in a building we do not own, we lease it, to bring this condemned, decrepit place back to life. It's seasonal. It's always free. It's got these huge garage style doors that open up on each end, one to the water and one to the shipyard. And we run a boat across the harbor from the museum to East Boston all summer. And we just closed this incredibly magnificent monumental work by Fairleigh Baez Mm -hmm. uh, just a couple of weeks ago. So yes, it was a risk to open this venue, go into East Boston. It's been nothing but wonderful. Were you thinking of parallels? Were you thinking of other examples of that kind of expansion or satellite? Well, this is a high bar, but I was thinking about my own experience and the experience I saw so many people around me having of Carol Walker's installation in the Domino Sugar Factory yeah. of a decrepit building on a waterfront with an artist creating a way to think about history, both the history of the building, the history of our country, with this monumental work of art. And that truly inspired me. But I, I've i been working in temporary public art for really a long, long, long time, way before the watershed. And I think of the watershed actually as a different definition of public art. It's there, it's open, it's free to the public, it's in a very public place. And I'm interested in using history and landscape to engage people who don't typically think contemporary art is of interest to them. The pandemic, as I'd say, put a bit of a pause in any notion of long-term because about 30 plus thousand people a summer go to the watershed. Mm-hmm. Some walk in from East Boston or from public transport or you know on foot or car or the T. And the majority come from the ICA 
by boat. And our goal is to shift those proportions, make it a little bit more equal. And we are making progress each of the three years that we've been open with works of art. We weren't open last summer. We didn't present a work of art last summer. It was supposed to have been this work by Fairley. But East Boston was the hardest hit neighborhood by COVID in Boston. When we decided to close in March 2020, which we did before the city and state required it of us, and we did it in concert with the Gardner and the MFA, we've been very aligned all through the pandemic. We called up the community-based organizations with whom we'd been working closely in our first two summers to just tell them we were closing, but also to ask them how they were faring. Mm -hmm. And we heard the exact same thing from each organization, which is that there was a dire, heartbreaking, dire need for fresh food. So almost overnight, I think it took us two nights, we raised the money to provide fresh fruit, vegetables, and dairy in partnership with the community organizations. And we've been using the watershed since then as a distribution site. We've added art kits and commissioned artists to create these art kits. And we've fed over 40,000 people since the pandemic started. And now this past summer, we of course coordinated it with our public hours so we could continue to use it as a distribution site, but also welcome visitors to see the work of Fairlay and an artist from Boston named Stephen Hamilton. Jill, it's really inspiring, and it's such a leadership act. It's the sort of thing you're well known for. I wanted to ask you vis-a-vis Venice, because what you're describing with the watershed feels a little bit like the Judeca or something, where you, you take a boat to see another installation around the Biennale, and you nominated artist Simone Lee to represent the U.S., in the 59th Venice Biennale, which will be opening, we assume, April 23rd, 2022, having overseen the 2011 edition of the U.S. Pavilion, I vividly remember the process of applying. What can you tell us about the application process to the extent the NEA and the State Department allow you to be clear? How does it work? Well, I saw your Biennale at the U.S. Pavilion, and I felt so lucky to have been there. So you know that it is actually a closely held process, but let me share what I know. What I know is that all organizations are eligible to apply to the State Department to be the commissioners of the U.S. Pavilion. We did do that. It is an exhaustive proposal process because the State Department requires a quite detailed outline of information about the artist, the exhibition, the educational activities, the partners, the cost, the revenue. So it's a very detailed and specific proposal. Once we submitted it, there is not a lot of information. What I do know is that there is a panel that is convened by the National Endowment for the Arts. So that's a peer panel. I don't know who sat on that panel. And that it was a competitive process though I don't know how many institutions competed. And then the recommendation of the NEA panel goes back to the State Department, makes its way through that particular bureaucracy, and then we were informed that we had been awarded the commission. Was this under Secretary of State Mike Pompeo? Yes, it was. Secretary Mike, as we might call him, did not stand in the way of this proposal, is what you're saying? Not, not that we know of, and obviously in the end result, 
No. You know, I was so impressed. I am so impressed by our colleagues who work in the cultural and educational sector of the State Department, who clearly have had to stay very focused on their mission to be able to support projects like the Venice Biennale and other international projects, and who really understand both the importance of the kind of soft diplomacy that this offers and the importance of the arts to the United States of America. And so I learned a lot about their work, which is not the work we typically hear about at the State Department. Right. The bureaucracy is filled with talented, hardworking, diligent people who serve at the pleasure of others who may be some of that and maybe less so. How much has Simone already prepared? How much more work is she preparing for the Vietnam? Well, the, the pavilion is going to be full of all new work, and she is hard at it. Her work is these powerful and heavy, in terms of weight, bronzes, as well as ceramics. That is the work she's best known for. And it's going to have to be shipped overseas by boat. Mm -hmm. So she is well into it. What we're trying to do now is safeguard her privacy as she focuses on the creative process. That is, her privacy is something critically important to her and and how she works. And so we are doing that and we'll all get to see the work when it appears next April. Yeah. And the U.S. Pavilion itself is one that a decade ago we helped bring back into better shape with new electrification and some consolidation. So I hope the building is ready, willing, and able. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. You probably remember that every single thing that gets done to the building, because it's a listed building, a building of historic significance in Venice, goes through many iterations of approvals. And for work as heavy as Simone's, that will include some fortification. And we're excited to be able to do this work. And I appreciate all the investment that you made a decade ago. And I hope that the work that the ICA is doing will serve people who come after us in the future. I'm sure of it. Why has Boston been so successful at representing the U.S. in Venice? MIT in particular, Joan Jonas's exhibition at the U.S. Pavilion in 2015 was the third Venice Biennale project the MIT List Visual Arts Center presented. I know. And it's such a good question, Max. I've asked the same question. Nobody seems to have an answer, but I'll tell you what I posit. I posit that an academic institution has some, what seems to me from where I sit, enviable flexibility, support, and resources, and that they are essential ingredients for all the time it takes to submit the proposal, as we were discussing, but also to oversee a proposal of that magnitude and have a really large universe of resources, academic, intellectual, financial, to draw upon to be able to realize and deliver a project that has so many different aspects. And it's a small building, and yet the costs associated with putting on a project in it are considerable, partly a function, as you say, of international transport and all of the associated challenges. Well, we're very excited. Everyone can't wait to see this. And Well, I think it's really thrilling. I mean, you know that Simone would be the first Black woman to represent the United States in Venice, but Mm -hmm. even more than that, to see the work that she's always done that centers the 
histories and experiences that are so historically overlooked of Black women in this building that opened in 1930, which was the height of Jim Crow and anti-Black violence in the States, and of course, of rising fascism and anti-Semitism in Europe. So I think it is going to be powerful, important, beautiful, magnetic, eye-opening. Yes. Jill, speaking of MIT, your tenure at the ICA is the subject of an MIT Sloan School of Management case study on leadership and risk. What can you tell us about that? I kind of love that case study, to be (laughs) honest, though it's now, you know, several, many years old. In the larger sense, it's a case study about the political organizing that was required to navigate and ultimately be successful with building the new ICA, which opened at the end of 2006. But in a city, Boston, that had not had a new art museum in nearly 100 years, a century, and one that was really very unwelcoming, unfriendly to contemporary art and architecture. Mm -hmm. So for me, what that case study really talks about speaks very much to how I grew up. I grew up in New Haven, Connecticut, but in a household that was defined by local electoral politics. I was a townie, not gown. My dad was in elected office. I'd been campaigning since I was in utero. Uh, And it was, I would say it is this background of political organizing, my own, you know, degree in art history that has kind of been what formed my version of cultural leadership and an understanding of how to navigate the really conservative oppositional waters in Boston when we were building the new ICA. Yeah, Boston has a fascinating hybrid of impulses. MFA's collection of classical antiquities started in the early 20th century was renowned for having more pornographic Greek art than any other collection. And yet we think of Boston as repressed, but that's so often the case with the Victoriana, isn't it? That there Exactly. Is and with repression. Yes. Yeah. I found it difficult to be an arts administrator with strong political views and having to keep those in check to a fair degree. Is that a dilemma that you've mastered, that you've conquered? How do you see that for your peers in the field? I think that if there is a dilemma for me, since I am a political person and politics is in my DNA, it has been to try to find those ways that are not overt partisan lobbying Mm -hmm. to make a difference and to uphold values that I hold dear. I found lots of ways. I think that having the ICA be a place for voter registration has been a way that I've been able to ensure that we participate in a civic dialogue without, as I said, being overtly partisan in our politics, to work with all of the other museums to stand against travel bans, to support our staff in myriad ways as they all find their own political voice. You know, I think that all of the Black Lives Matter, all of the organizing for women's rights, for voters' rights. I mean, this is all optimistic for me. Mm -hmm. I'm just incredibly happy to be alive to see this happening in these movements now. Some of them we thought, my generation thought we had put put to bed and 
we haven't, and others are so long overdue. But I feel very happy to stand shoulder to shoulder with great women and men and people who are fighting for change. Agreed. And I think last year in particular, we saw a flowering of stated commitment to diversity, equity, inclusion, access by a lot of peer institutions, which had heretofore been less animated in that. But I guess my question to you is, is that going to last as museums begin to reopen, as the grinding gears of earned revenue, attendance, blockbusters, as all of that starts to return, will the commitment remain? Absent a crystal ball, I don't know. But what I will say is I think you will see it remaining in all of those institutions, and I include the ICA here, who had that commitment preceding the last year and a half. I'd say in the ICA, we we have work ahead. We've been working consistently, but the work is not new. It's evolving. It's ongoing. In places where it was possibly additive as opposed to organic or part of the organization's values and programs and people, because it's all of those, then I think that there's just a lot more work ahead. I think that change is here to stay. I do. One of the things I love best about contemporary art is that when we really truly encounter it and put ourselves in someone else's shoes, it just elevates the dignity of each of us. We see people anew. We see ideas anew. We can imagine things that we hadn't thought of before. And I think that the arts are part of this flourishing of both truth and openness and expansion. And the circle is just so much better for being bigger. And I think that change is here to stay. Love your optimism. And I know you live it. I know you are committed. I will say that so much of the art museum field is too tied to the art market for the kinds of independent thought and action that you represent and you espouse and you act on. And I'm curious about your thinking. Do you feel that in the contemporary art world, the art market's increasing power over programming, over collector's decisions, over trustee impulses is an issue to be reckoned with? Well, you know, we've been seeing some articles uh, in the last week um, from Ai Weiwei talking about this very topic. But, you know, honestly, I've never worked in the commercial side of the art world. Never. In fact, I grew up, I, you know, I really came of age in the artist space movement, the artist run organizations in New York and Seattle, which was unambiguously anti-consumer, anti-market. I started in artist books and performance art in the late 70s and political art. So that experience has been as formative for me as any. And the ICA has only been a collecting institution for 15 years. But I can tell you that I've never felt any pressure from ICA trustees to exhibit or acquire an artist. And the ICA has a long history of courage as a non-collecting institution that I've tried to uphold. But I think that these are just tendencies we need to be on guard against and honest about. Tell us about that transition, Jill, to a collecting institution. We were looking at the need for change when I arrived at the ICA. When I arrived at the ICA, the ICA was in a former police station 
that was built in the late 1800s to keep people out. It successfully did that the entire time the ICA was in said police station, which had a holding cell still in its sub-basement. So it didn't have much of an audience. It didn't have any money in the bank. It didn't have much of a staff. And in fact, when I arrived, its printer didn't print V's or W's, which with my last name was very difficult. So it needed change and it didn't need tweaks. And so we, the organization, small as it was, were looking at a variety of things, including expanding on that site, moving to a different site. And as part of all of those conversations, we looked at the question of to collect or not to collect. We looked at the history of decisions that had led the ICA not to be a collecting institution. The ICA was founded in 1936 as an affiliate of MoMA. And I put together a group that one, basically a debate team, one side was headed by one of our trustees, both super knowledgeable people who was vehemently against the ICA becoming a collecting institution. And the other was headed up by someone who was pro-collecting. And they and we spent a year in that debate. Um, but what we heard over and over again is that schools and educators found it very difficult to deal with the ICA because exhibitions were always changing. It was a bit like a movie theater, only as good as the last show. And they needed some predictability to be able to bring their students there. We did want to attract collectors, thinking that they might make more of an investment in an institution that was that had a collection, we wanted something that I always called and I believe in deeply, which is affection. I think there is a really big role for falling in love with places and works of art. And I know that for me, you know, every time I would go see El Haleo at the Gardner Museum, I was overjoyed. Mm -hmm. I wanted some of that for visitors to the ICA, which I'd say, for example, our Cornelia Parker hanging fire has mm -hmm. become that. And so there were lots of reasons in the end why we decided to become a collecting institution. And we're lucky. We don't have a historical collection. We have about 350 works of art. We have more works of art in our collection by women than men. We have almost 40% are by artists of color. Uh, and it's a deliberate, intentional, small, fierce, kind of <laughs> fierce and powerful collection. It's a fierce and powerful collection, yes, and its leader is the same. Jill, tell us about your fall exhibition program. We're looking forward now. We're not only looking back, we're looking forward. So tell Great. us what to expect. Okay, here's our fall exhibition program. We just opened an exhibition by Raul de Nieves. Uh, so a room full of just colored, bright, beaded sculptures that speak all about different cultural references and identity. We opened our biannual Foster Prize exhibition, which is a curated exhibition of Boston area artists. We're getting ready in November to open Dina Lawson's first survey exhibition, which we co-organized with PS1 MoMA. And we are slowly, slowly getting ready later this fall to also reopen our indoor stage and return with performance. Jill, internships have been a fact of life in museums for as long as we can remember, but you advocated within the professional association an edict that they must be paid. Can you tell us about that? 
Yes, thank you for asking about that. It's really important to me and actually a source of pride. As you're saying, museums have long relied on interns to both help with the work and also to be of service to the field, to provide experiential learning opportunities outside of the classroom for young museum professionals and scholars to gain hands-on experience and chops. And historically, these interns and internships have all been unpaid. When I was on the board of AAMD, our Art Museum Directors Professional Association, and co-chairing with Mark Basir from the Portland Art Museum, Portland, Maine, the Professional Practices Committee, and now it's co-chaired by Mark and Franklin Sermons, we took on this issue trying to develop new guidelines and open the conversation among the many, many different kinds of museums that exist in AMD for guidelines that for paid internships. And I'm pleased that after, it took a couple of years, but after a couple of years, that has become a guideline of AAMD. I'm hoping that paid internships will ultimately be part of what's reviewed when a museum applies for accreditation from AAM, because I think that paid internships are one of the few ways we can change the pipeline of who becomes part of our staff and our field. And to basically make it up into the ranks, we know that employers writ large and museum employers value internships the associations one makes, the contacts, the learning, the skill set, more than almost any other criteria when people go out to look for jobs. And I think we have an obligation to invest in that and to pay interns for their labor. No surprise coming from you, Jill, and I'm grateful to you for that advocacy and for everything else you've done at the ICA and will continue to. And thank you for being part of the podcast. Thank you. It's been a really, uh, really great pleasure. We've been speaking with Jill Medvedow, Ellen Matilda Poss, Director of the Institute of Contemporary Art, Boston. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping.